This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting from Johannesburg. Warm the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. I'm Zama Nuswa Nuswa, driving the show with Amanda Machako on news, economics with Wisani Matebula, and sports with Mosiburi Makora. Top stories in Africa Digest. The South West of Africa's deputy president arrives in Lesotho for talks to restore stability and Sierra Leone hails its Ebola containment strategy. In economics of African power, utility ESCOM says the country's power grid will remain tightened and rather threatened until 2019 and in sport all the action from the FBI Zone 5 Basketball Championships. And now for the news with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Zama. Good evening. Lesotho's churches have urged those seeking to find a solution to the country's political crisis to ensure that the will of the people prevails. South Africa's Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa spent the day in Maseru talking to political parties and civil society groups. Lesotho's churches have been involved in efforts to bring the parties and the governing coalition together after a month-long impasse that has seen Parliament suspended. Head of the Christian Council of Lesotho, Adi Lurutul. Let's look at the people who are most affected by the present situation. And these are the people, the voters themselves, the electorate, who are there. And these are the people I, as representatives, more concerned about. Because these ones, for now, I don't hear their voice, and I'm concerned because these are the people who have put whoever claims to be a leader in power, and they need to be heard. Three of the 26 South Africans injured in the Lagos Church disaster in Nigeria are permanently disabled. 25 of the injured have been admitted to the Steve Bugo Academic Hospital in the South African capital, Pretoria. One of the South Africans stayed behind, Spuam Kize reports. So far, two of the victims are in a critical condition, while the rest are stabilized. Hospital authorities say they are in high spirits. The families wait at the patients as the ambulances arrived earlier. Doctors are currently assessing the patients. Their anxious family members are waiting to see their loved ones at the hospital wards. Social Development Deputy Minister Henrietta Bokopanezulu says they will provide counseling to the affected families. She says they will also provide them with transport and accommodation. The UN mission in Libya is hoping to convene a political dialogue next week aimed at resolving months of crisis in the country where rival governments are vying for power. Libya has been rocked by political instability since a NATO-backed uprising toppled and killed veteran dictator Muammar Gaddafi in 2011. Three years later, Prime Minister Abdullah Al-Tani's government and the internationally recognized parliament elected in June are being challenged by rival Islamist-backed administrations. The country is also being torn apart by fighting between Islamist and nationalist militias. The UN mission has said in a statement that it will call on the different parties to meet next week for an initial round of talks aimed at ending the strife. 
Uganda's President Yoweri Museveni has been blocked from staying at a hotel in Texas due to a campaign by gay rights activists. The president faced international condemnation after the Ugandan parliament passed a bill earlier this year that would see homosexuals potentially jailed for life, although the legislation was struck down by the East African nation's constitutional court. Museveni, Texas, last week... Museveni was in Texas last week to meet potential investors and members of the Ugandan diaspora. Homosexuality remains illegal in Uganda and punishable by a jail sentence, even without the tough new law. And finally, it has emerged that rhino horns are now being used for bling status in Vietnam. According to a worldwide fund for nature study, middle-class Vietnamese men are flaunting their wealth with rhino products while poaching in South Africa mounds. More than 750 rhino have been killed in the country since the beginning of the year. WWF coordinator John Shaw spoke to the media in Cape Town about the study. There still seems to be an underlying belief in some of the medicinal benefits of rhino horn to, to detox the body. It's now being used much more for emotional drivers. People believe that it shows off their status and their wealth. It's something the upper middle class in Vietnam are are doing within their peer groups to almost to show off to each other. We're even getting reports of people displaying rhino horns in their house. It's being used as a gift to give to your business associates within your peer group to show your respect for them. That's the latest news. South Africa's Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa is in Maseru in Lesotho for talks to restore stability in the mountain kingdom. He's expected to facilitate a peaceful resolution to the political and security challenges facing the country as mandated by the SADC grouping. The contentious issue remains the reopening of Parliament, which was suspended in June this year. For more on this, we're now joined on the line from Maseru, our correspondent, Dahwane Ngatane. Welcome to Channel Africa and Dagwane tell us this is the second time that Deputy President Ramaphosa is in Maseru for talks what came out of his visit last week well Dama yes good afternoon this is the second visit by Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa but the difference this time around is that unlike last week when he was merely on an assessment mission to establish what has transpired in the past two months in Lesotho since Parliament was closed in June. Today he has gone into the meat of his mission, which is to mediate the crisis in Lesotho. And from what we understand with the parties that he has met, um, talks have gone in-depth in terms of how to actually deal with the situation in Lesotho. Particularly, we spoke to Prince Seiso Seiso, who's the king's brother here in Lesotho, who has come out of his meeting with other chiefs, with President Deputy President Ramaphosa, to make a clarion call for parties in Lesotho to move from their positions and put national interest before personal interest. Now, we gather that from your conversation, as you just said, you met that Cyril Ramaphosa met with the prince. Were any of the political parties involved in these discussions that happened today? And also, who else is he expected to meet aside from the dignitaries that he met with today? Indeed, the first meeting that Deputy President Ramaphosa had this morning was with 
in opposition Democratic Congress that was followed by other members of the Parliament of Lesotho. It has about 120 members, the Parliament of Lesotho, from different parties. He also met the College of Chiefs that the King's brother comes from, who are also members of the Senate, the Upper House of Parliament here in Lesotho. He is expected now to be in meetings with the three coalition leaders of the government of Lesotho. They are Prime Minister Tom Tabani, Deputy Prime Minister Motejwa Mithing, as well as BNP leader Tisili Masiribani. Following that, we expect that he will meet the Council of Churches in Lesotho, but um, also disappointed or rather concerned about their exclusion in these meetings has been the civil society, the Transformation Resource Center coming out to say that it has played a crucial role or the civil society has played a crucial role in differences in Lesotho in the past and they're concerned that this time around they don't seem to be involved and that has in the past gone wrong in terms of leaving processes unfinished in other countries and Lesotho and that um, they hope this will not be the case around Zama. Now, when we discuss these meetings, and obviously top of the agenda is getting the country right back to where it should be in terms of the operation and the opening of parliament, but what are the other expected outcomes that the various groups are hoping to champion in their meetings with the South African Deputy President? You will remember in the meeting that was held in Pretoria, the leaders came back and they had agreed that Lesotho would hold elections earlier than 2017. The elections in Lesotho were held in 2012 and the next election was supposed to be in 2017. But looking at the challenges that the coalition government is facing, they have agreed now to bring elections forward to before 2017, and this is one of the dates that have to be agreed. The other date that has to be agreed will be the reopening or reconvening of Parliament, but parties are agreeing that that opening of Parliament should focus more on reforming the Constitution of Lesotho as opposed to going into full governance as it now stands that uh, it, it has now proven that the coalition government will not survive on its own at the current moment. So constitutional reforms being quite key in ensuring that this and other future coalition governments in Lesotho can survive because as it is currently, the Prime Minister has absolute power enshrined in the Constitution, but in the case where you have a coalition government and other opposition parties saying the Prime Minister should consult those other parties that he is in a coalition with. The other issue is the issue of security that has been quite top in Lesotho with the change of the command of the army here and uh, other parties being differing in terms of who should be the commander of the I mean, the prime minister saying that he has followed the letter of the law in replacing the current commander. And, of course, the opposition party saying that he had done nothing wrong and therefore he should be heard or given a fair hearing before he is dismissed from this position. Now, discussing issues of security, there allegedly was a brief shootout on early Friday morning near the home of the police chief, Hotato Tsuana, which saw Lesotho police and soldiers exchange fire. Do we know yet what led to the shootout and if there were any casualties? Well, as far as... As far as the side of the Prime Minister is concerned on this issue, this is one of the reasons why he is specifically saying Parliament cannot open or did not open a schedule on the 19th, which was last Friday. He's saying the security situation in Lesotho at the moment is unstable. And this, is, uh, this incident is one of those that prove that um, the fired Lieutenant General Tladika Modi is causing the tensions within the army or the divisions within the army. And some members of the army who are loyal to him may perhaps be responsible for these acts um, of violence that are in clashes with the police. But of course, other parts, um, the Deputy Prime Minister's party 
in the coalition as well as the opposition uh, parties saying that the political situation in Lesotho should not be related to the military issues and that uh, solving the political uh, issues through democratic processes should solve all other issues, including that of the appointing or firing of the commander and therefore the stability in the security of the country. Zama. Ndagwana, thank you so much for that update and I'm sure we'll be, you'll be keeping us abreast with the situation there. Thank you. That was Lesotho's correspondent for Channel Africa, Ndagwana Ngadane, joining us live from the line Maseru in Lesotho. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Human Rights Watch has just released a report on universal jurisdiction to end impunity and hold perpetrators of mass atrocities to account. The latest report titled The Long Arm of Justice, Lessons from Specialized War Crimes Units in France, Germany and the Netherlands, authored by Leslie Haskell, International Justice Council at Human Rights Watch, examines the inner workings of war crimes units in these three countries and highlights lessons learned. Haskell says since justice is often elusive where the crimes occurred, national courts in these states and elsewhere are frequently applying the long-standing principle of universal justice to prosecute suspects of accused genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, torture, and regardless of where the crimes are committed and the victims and accused nationally. The report looks at universal jurisdiction, which is the ability of courts really anywhere to prosecute suspects of serious international crimes like genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and torture, regardless of where the crimes were committed and regardless of the nationality of the accused and of the victims. And the report specifically looks at the crucial role that specialized war crimes units, which are units composed of police officers, prosecutors, immigration officials that only work on these cases, have in advancing these cases and and making sure they're successful. Now, the principle of universal jurisdiction allows any country to prosecute people suspected of committing grave international crimes, such as genocide, um, like you've said, crimes against humanity, war crimes, regardless of where the crimes were committed. But wouldn't the country the suspect is residing in have to collect conclusive evidence before arresting them? Well, it depends. Where the person could be sent back and receive a fair trial and not be subject to the, the death penalty, of course, it's better to have the person tried in the country where the crimes were committed. But that's not always possible, and that's what Universal's jurisdiction is about. It's a, a safety net, really, when victims have nowhere else to turn, so they can't get justice in their own country. The case may not be before the International Criminal Court or another international tribunal. So other countries step in to really fill the and prosecute these individuals. Still on that point, what about the countries now where these crimes were committed? Can they not seek the extradition of the suspects and try them in their own countries? 
Of course, they can seek extradition, and Rwanda is a good example there because in most instances, Rwanda does seek to have the person sent back to the country to be tried there. Some countries, in fact, most countries are now leaning toward extradition, but a number of countries like France, for example, have not extradited suspects back to Rwanda. And in those cases, they need to prosecute these individuals you know, that are suspected of, of involvement in the genocide. But now, what is the role of the International Criminal Court here? Wouldn't it just be easier for countries who have these specialized war crime units to simply send the suspects to the ICC? Well, the ICC has limited resources and also has limited jurisdiction. For example, it can't prosecute crimes that occurred before the Rome Statute was adopted, before it came into being. So crimes before 2002 simply aren't possible at the International Criminal Court. And in addition, a number of states aren't parties to the International Criminal Court. So unless there's a Security Council referral, there's no way in which crimes that occur in those countries, for example, Syria, to land at the ICC. So you need national courts to do that. And where you don't have national courts that are either functioning or able to bring justice for the you know, full scope of crimes, again, looking at Syria, for example, that's where you need other countries to step in. Now, we know that France, Germany, and the Netherlands have had some success in investigating and prosecuting cases of genocide and war crimes committed abroad. But now, why have these particular countries, these three countries, taken it upon themselves to prosecute suspects of war crimes who have run away from their countries? Well, these aren't the only, the only countries that have universal jurisdiction. There are many, many countries that have universal jurisdiction. We chose to focus on these three countries because we thought they offer quite a diverse you know, set of experiences with the Netherlands that's been around for more than a decade and France and Germany that has specialized war crimes units really only in the last few years. And in fact, those war crimes units brought their first cases to trial this year. So in February and in March of this year, they had their first convictions, both in connection with the genocide. But there are a number of other countries. I mean, even South Africa has cases pending on the basis of universal jurisdiction. And in fact, in South Africa, they have a specialized war crimes unit within the prosecutor's office and the police. We'd like to see them do more, but it exists. Now, just explain to us how these specialized war crime units work, really. Well, they're composed from a diverse set of backgrounds in most cases, and the numbers vary from, you know, very small units with three, four people to huge units like the, the Dutch police unit that has 31 individuals. They usually have people that have international experience that are very interested in these types of cases that are willing to travel abroad for long periods of time which is really critical because often these cases require investigations in a whole host of countries, but including the country where the crimes were committed. So what we've seen is that these war crimes units bring together the necessary personnel and the necessary resources that can really tackle the challenge of these cases because investigating these cases isn't easy and you need people that want to be doing the work, that have experience in doing the work and that can work together closely to carry out the investigations and and bring cases to trial. That's Leslie Haskell, International Justice Council at Human Rights Watch and author of the report on the line from Paris speaking to Jose Khodingake. Three South African victims of the Nigeria church collapse tragedy are permanently disabled due to the severity of the injuries they sustained. They were injured last week in Lagos when a church guesthouse they were in collapsed. 
The three and 22 others were admitted to the Steve Biko Academic Hospital after they landed at the Swarkop Air Force Base in the country's capital, Pretoria, after a 10-hour flight from Nigeria this morning. Selina Dobong reports. Minister in the Presidency Jeff Khadebe speaking earlier at a press briefing said the death toll from the collapse of a church guesthouse in Lagos has risen to 115. 84 of the deceased are South African. Social workers received two toddlers orphaned by the collapse when they arrived at the local Steve Biko Academic Hospital. The two are aged 18 months and two years. Another child aged six was also part of the group that landed after a 10-hour flight from Nigeria. Minister Khadebe described the nature of some of the injuries sustained by the victims. Three of the patients who landed this morning had their limbs amputated, others from upper knee and others below the knee. And one of them uh, developed uh, gangrene during this tragedy and uh, their toes will be amputated. Others have fractured others kidney failures, one of them is on dialysis. There is still no indication as to when the first batch of bodies will arrive in South Africa, but Minister Khadebe says the process has been expedited. The most difficult part now, the phase that we are entering in with our assessment team in Lagos, is now to start the effort of repatriating the 84 South Africans who have been identified to be deceased in this tragedy. That process will be dependent on the pace in which the assessment team is proceeding in Lagos, in particular the DNA that is being conducted so that we are sure that all those that will be repatriating are South African citizens. He commended the heavily criticized Nigerian government for its cooperation in the evacuation of the 25 injured. We are keenly awaiting as a South African government the investigation that is being conducted by the Nigerian government so that we get at the bottom of the cause of the collapse of this building that has caused us this national disaster. I cannot express to you how sad this thing is, even seeing the injured in that aircraft. Three children, two of whom have lost both parents, they're orphaned as we speak. So we are appealing to South Africans that as we are in the moment of grief, let's hold each other's hands so that this tragedy must be dealt in a manner that it deserves. Meanwhile, the leader of the Synagogue Church of All Nations, Prophet T.B. Joshua, yesterday announced that he will be traveling to South Africa to meet with the families of those who died at his church as well as survivors of the incident. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Selina Ntobong. South Africa's Police Commissioner Ria Piaja says the country continues to attract investors because crime is not out of control. This is despite recent statistics indicating that murder, attempted murder, robbery with aggravated circumstances, common robbery and theft out of motor vehicles increased over the past year. Sexual offences decreased during the same period. The Commissioner, together with Police Minister Ngosnati Nkeko, discussed the 2013-2014 crime statistics in Santon, north of Johannesburg in South Africa this morning. Wisani Makobele reports. 
Serious and violent crimes such as murder, hijacking and armed robberies showed an increase according to the statistics. There were also almost 2,000 violent community protests in the country during the 2013-2014 financial year. However, Police Commissioner Ria Piecha maintains the police are on top of their game. Police are in control and this is why we arrested 1,7 million people last year alone. You would not have companies from the world to come and say, we want to put 30 billion in South Africa to buy APSA Bank. It's because they know that there is stability in this country. They would not waste those billions to come into this country if they were not knowing that we have a good, safe and secure country where the law enforcement agencies are doing their work. Police Minister Kosina Tintleko has called for a balanced criticism of the police. Tleko admits that there are certain high-profile cases in which a few police officers didn't do well, but says the majority of them are doing a sterling job. There are these incidences that have been spoken about, the media, Marcia, Americana, Mr. Pistorius's case. It can't be that because of the actions of the few, the tens of thousands constructive and positive work in society, is completely lost and misconstrued. Regardless of these negative developments, we now have got a South African police service that is accountable. In the Midiomasha case, within a year, investigated, charged, and people were then fired. Minister Ntleko has also raised concerns over the issue of repeat offenders. He now intends to take up the matter with some of his cabinet colleagues. As part of making a contribution to strengthen the criminal justice system in the country, it's a point that we'll want to take forward as well for further engagement and discussion with our sister sort of departments in the criminal justice sector. Yes, we arrest, but we also have got to refer our work to duly constituted courts of law in our country who then process and then determine the issue of, of whether or not you are granted bail or not granted bail. The issue that needs to be taken forward is the question that says, are our bail conditions tight enough? The leadership of the police is also working on removing some of the obstacles affecting crime reporting. Piecha says they want to enable everyone to report crime in the language of their choice. One of the things we're starting to talk about, for instance, with our Human Resources Development Department, is mother tongue statement taking, so that we can enable the police and others to be able to report in their mother tongue, we record, we question, but we're able to translate it. So it's one of the modules that we're currently working on. And in light of the recent spate of robberies at various shopping centers in the country, Piecha says their festive season anti-crime campaign will be introduced sooner. The inner perimeter of the malls are policed by security that is uh, appointed by the mall owners. But we need to leverage each other's energy. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is why we will be launching our festive season campaign much earlier because we noted what was happening and we are meeting to talk about how we can yeah. cooperate and collaborate mm-hmm. and make more visibility there. There was Police Commissioner Ria Piaha ending that report by Wisani Makubele. About 92 bodies and at least 56 new infections have been discovered in Sierra Leone during a nationwide Ebola lockdown. The three-day measure came into effect last week Friday to try to stem the worst Ebola epidemic on record. Elizabeth Ledecha reports. An extreme strategy employed by a nation since the Ebola outbreak was reported in West Africa this year. 
Sierra Leone's 6 million residents were ordered to stay indoors this past weekend as volunteers circulated to educate people about the outbreak and isolate the sick. Some people reportedly contacted authorities during the lockdown, believing they might be infected. Of these, about 56 tested positive for Ebola, 31 others tested negative, while 36 are still awaiting their results. Top emergency official in Sierra Leone, Stephen Gaugia, says the lockdown has enabled health workers to contact many households and identify a lot of people that might have been infected. We are able to really discover quite a lot of people who may have been infected, suspected cases. We already have a little over 150 people who willingly left their houses and reported to the nearest holding center or isolation center where they were tested and those who were positive were taken to treatment centers. The international medical charity organization Doctors Without Borders, MSF, had warned last week that the lockdown could lead people to conceal cases. According to the agency Spori Lagrange, there are certain things that need to be prioritized if the region is to win the fight against Ebola. We still see that the response on the ground is still not at the level that it should be if you look at the level of need. So we know that the basic tools of the fight against Ebola, isolation centers, proper follow-up case management, proper follow-up of suspect cases, the ability to diagnose patients and to test whether someone is in fact infected with Ebola or not. These are vital and very basic building blocks of a response to an epidemic of this magnitude. And today on the ground, we're still concerned that we haven't seen the trickle-down effect or the rapid implementation of these to meet the massive needs. The deadliest Ebola epidemic the world has ever seen continues to spread across West Africa, with Liberia, Guinea and Sierra Leone regarded as the worst affected nations. So far, the death toll has topped 2,600 out of more than 5,300 people infected. The World Health Organization says the number of new cases is moving far faster than the capacity to manage them in Ebola-specific treatment centers. The UN health body has called on development partners trying to help countries to respond to the outbreak to prepare to scale up their current efforts. The deadly virus is transmitted through sweat, blood and saliva and there's no proven cure reporting for channel africa i am elizabeth lidira in johannesburg and now it's time for the news headlines with amanda machak Thank you, Zama. Good evening. The World Health Organization says the Ebola outbreak in West Africa has been largely contained in Senegal and Nigeria. The overall number of deaths has risen to nearly 2,800. The Lesotho Transformation Resource Center has appealed to SADC to ensure that South Africa's Deputy President, Cyril Ramaphosa's facilitation process, includes constitutional reforms. Ramaphosa is in the Mountain Kingdom for more talks with leaders in the fragile coalition government. And the UN mission in Libya is hoping to convene a political dialogue next week aimed at resolving months of crisis in the country where rival governments are vying for power. Those are news headlines.
The Worldwide Fund for Nature South Africa says there's strong evidence that most of South Africa's rhino horns are destined for the illegal Vietnamese market. This is according to the WWF South Africa CEO Monet Duplessis, who briefed the media in Cape Town. Mercedes Percent reports. WWF South Africa's interaction with the media were to create awareness around the problem of rhino poaching and to mark World Rhino Day. Mornay Duplessis says WWFSA is now targeting Vietnam in an attempt to save the country's dwindling rhino population. Since uh, 2008, our rhino numbers that have been poached has really skyrocketed and uh, there's strong evidence to suggest that most of the rhino horn is going to Vietnam where new uses for rhino horn uh, have been created and uh, this this is an important additional contributor over and above uh, the former general use by Chinese and others. Rhino horns are now being used to indicate wealth and social status in Vietnam. This has emerged from a study undertaken by WWF South Africa. The study was conducted among middle-class Vietnamese males aged 35 to 50 years old. Rhino coordinator Joe Shaw, who conducted the study, says the rhino horn is no longer targeted for medicinal use only. It's now being used much more for emotional drivers. People believe that it shows off their status and their wealth. It's something the upper middle class in Vietnam are are doing within their peer groups to almost to show off to each other. We're even getting reports of people displaying rhino horns in their house. It's being used as a gift to give to your business associates within your peer group to show your respect for them. Shaw says an extensive campaign has now been launched in Vietnam to create awareness through the same rhino horn users of that country. So we've undertaken very detailed research to understand who our real target audience should be, who are the main users, whose behavior we need to change right now, these middle-aged, successful businessmen in the urban centers, and we're talking directly to them, using their voices to change the behavior of others. The, The message being that successful, powerful men, their power comes from within themselves, not from a piece of horn. The CEO of WWF South Africa, Mornay Duplessis, says most of the rhino horn is poached from the Kruger National Park and find its way to Mozambique. Almost around two-thirds of our rhinos poached every year are being lost from Kruger National Park. Two-thirds means over 600 rhinos in 2013, and it's probably going to be similar, if not worse, this year, 2014. Uh, most of those rhino horns are uh, being taken through Mozambique because of different uh, law enforcement uh, capabilities, etc. So those uh, horns are then transiting through Mozambique and reaching Asia from, from Mozambican ports. He says efforts are in place to dismantle the free flow of rhino horns between Mozambique and Asia. Uh, WWF, together with its colleagues in WWF Mozambique, have now developed a strategy that provides uh, strategic solutions to both the government, to law enforcement agencies in Mozambique, as well as uh, businesses and communities uh, in order to help clamp down on the free flow of rhino horn through that country. Duplessis is urging South African communities who live in areas with a rhino population to help play a watchdog role to conserve the South African rhino. Because... The presence of rhinos in reserves around which they live uh, 
uh, are a fundamental driver of value for the tourism business and enable them as community members to obtain jobs and to earn incomes. And so every rhino lost in those key populations is something that threatens their very livelihoods. He says the Worldwide Fund and various other stakeholders have invested extensively in equipment and protective clothing to maximize the preservation and conservation of the South African rhino. Duplessis has also welcomed the work done by the Veterinary Genetics Laboratory at the University of Pretoria, which is now testing DNA samples from rhino horns, especially horns which have been found abundant. Duplessis believes that this DNA forensic program will help to trace perpetrators and ensure maximum penalties for rhino poachers. Mercedes Basend, Cape Town. The South African National Park Week, an initiative by the South African National Parks to allow all South African citizens to visit the National Parks of their choice free of charge, was once again a success. Reynold Takuli, head of the communications at the South African National Parks, says this year has witnessed the increase of visitors at various national parks. Wandile Kaliba compiled this report. The annual South African National Park Week hosted by the South African National Parks, was once again a success. Reynold Takudi, head of communications at the South African National Parks, says this year's annual South African National Park Week saw an increase of about 85.9% visitors to various national parks during the focus week. South African National Parks Week, as you might, it's, it's actually about cultivating a of pride to ensure that South Africans who are not necessarily exposed to national parks before, they are not being given the opportunity to visit a national park. And so every year in September, we allow, you know, members of our communities to actually come and visit any national parks of their choice. And we've just finished this year's National Parks Week, which ran from the 8th to the 12th of September 2014. And this year we saw an increasing 85.9%, resulting in a total number of 53,251 visitors to various national parks this year. All national parks under the administration of the South African National Parks participated in the annual South African National Park Week, with the exception of two parks. We've got 21 national parks throughout South Africa, with the exception of the provinces of KwaZulu-Natal, Northwest and Gauteng. All 21 were participating, only two that we were excluded, which is Namakwa National Park, because it's the flower season and we have a high rate of visitors during that time, as well as the boulders within the Table Mountain National Park, which is quite a sensitive area, where we are breeding, you know, penguins in that particular park. But all other national parks, 19 of them, participated in the 2014 National Park Week. The Guardian Route National Park, which is Naisna, Titikama and Wilderness, did very well in the annual National Park Week. The Guardian Route National Park is made up of three national parks, which is Titikama, Wilderness section, as well as the Naisna section of the park. You know, they did pretty well as well in terms of, you know, the numbers. We saw a total of 4,037 visitors this year. And then the Akonikuba National Park had almost 20,000 visitors this year. And since inception, they have actually managed to attract uh, almost 84,000 visitors, inception nine years ago. The annual South African National Park Week is meant specifically for South African citizens. It's specifically for South Africans. As you might know, we have a very dark history in the country where certain population of the country were not allowed to visit this national park. So we are one or the other, you know, addressing the past imbalances and also making sure that, you know, that sense of pride 
for all South Africans is enshrined in every single South African. Meanwhile, Reynold Takudi says the South African National Parks can certainly confirm the arrest of three of its employees in connection with rhino poaching in the Kruger National Park. You can certainly confirm that yesterday, the three of our own colleagues on suspicion of poaching, the three of them were found with hunting rifle, ammunition, a vehicle which was believed to be a getaway car, and poaching equipment during the arrest. Uh, three are now uh, behind bars in the Kikuza police station, and I expect a trophy in court very soon. The arrest of the South African National Park's employees in connection with rhino poaching is not the first time. I think we should start by saying we've got a very good crop of rangers within South African National Park. Hence, it's very easy for us to identify those that are not. This is not the first incident. It has happened before where we arrested our own, and uh, we are hoping that this three will face the full might of the law like it has happened before. Those that were in actual fact caught poaching or assisting poachers or colluding with poachers have faced the full might of the law. And as we speak now, there are cases that are still running in court. That was Reynold Takudi, head of communications at the South African National Parks. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Wandila Kalipa in Johannesburg. An estimated 300,000 people have taken to the streets of New York City to highlight concerns about a lack of international action to stop climate change. The People's Climate March is part of a worldwide campaign to persuade global leaders to act decisively on the issue. The march comes two days ahead of the Heads of State Summit at the United Nations, which is hoped will lead to a global agreement of climate change. Daniel Dickinson reports from the streets of New York City. The message from the streets of New York was that action on climate change is needed now. The organizers say that more than 300,000 people from all walks of life joined the march. They created a noisy carnival atmosphere as they marched through the city. Many were dressed in costumes associated with indigenous groups. Others wore protest t-shirts. Many chanted slogans. Others played music. I asked some of the marchers why they'd come. Uh, I'm here with my union. We're here to support global change for a healthy economy and a healthy environment. I want uh, the whole world to know that we mean business. Because the world matters. Climate change affects all of us, right? There's no other place to live than Mother Earth. Similar climate events have been reported in 2,000 locations around the world. Rickon Patel is the executive director of the march organizers, Avaz. He says it's crucial for people to get out onto the streets. It's important because there's a huge gap between the action that our survival requires on climate change and the action our governments are currently willing to take. And the street is where we close that gap. The People's Climate March is campaigning for curbs on harmful carbon emissions, which contribute to global warming. Rikin Patel says progress is being made, but that more is needed. The question is, will it be enough in the race against time we've got? I mean, we're rushing headlong into catastrophic tipping points in our climate system, and we need action fast to transition to a 100% clean energy economy. I think this is the beginning, and it's a lot to build on. The UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon joined the march with the New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, as well as the French Sustainable Development Minister Ségolène Royal. Mr. Ban is convening a meeting of heads of state and government at the United Nations on Tuesday to galvanize action on climate change. He says those leaders should listen to what people on this march have to say. I hope this voice will be truly reflected to the leaders 
when they meet on September 23rd. Climate change is a defining issue of our time, and there is no time to lose. If we do not take action now, we will have to pay much more. It's expected that governments from around the world will come to Tuesday's summit with concrete initiatives and that it will provide significant momentum for a global agreement on tackling climate change. It's hoped a deal will be reached in Paris, France next year. Daniel Dickinson at the People's Climate March in New York. It's time now for an economics update with Wisani Matebula. Thanks, Arman. Good evening. The CEO of South African cement maker PPC, Keto Jordan, quit abruptly today with the company citing clashes between him and the board. PPC's shares fell more than 6% at the back of the news. Gordon was appointed at the beginning of last year. He leaves the company in the middle of an expansion drive into the rest of the continent and it's spearheaded to offset slowing demand at home. Non-executive chairperson Begis Bia will become executive chairperson until the appointment of a new CEO. Mauritius Sun Resorts will pay $29.6 million for a 50% stake in Anahata Hotel, which is a luxury resort along the east coast of the Indian Ocean Island. Tourism is a key source of hard currency for the Indian Ocean Island, known for its luxury spas and beaches. Though the vital tourism industry has struggled in recent years, mainly due to a faltering global economy, Sun Resorts owns and manages five hotel complexes in Mauritius and one in Maldives. And the Nigerian stock exchange has frozen the price of shares in Access Bank pending the results of a shareholder vote on the lender's planned $115 million share sale. Access Bank had been meeting domestic investors to gauge interest in a possible rights issue by the fourth quarter of the year. Shares in Access Bank is down 0.1% so far this year and they were frozen, meaning that investors can only buy or sell at that price. South African Power Utility, ESCOM, says uh, the country's power grid will remain threatened until 2019 and the country will have to live with the risk of electricity shortages for the next five years. Spokesperson Andrew Ettinger says the 2019 target coincides with the scheduled completion of the Medubi and Kusile power stations, which are expected to rescue the currently strained energy sector. We've indicated that at the moment we have a significant backlog on the maintenance of our existing power stations and before we can really say that we are in the clear, we're going to have to uh, reduce that backlog and that will unfortunately take time. So while new power stations are being built and the situation will, of course, uh, steadily improve, we won't uh, be in the the absolute clear uh, for a number of years. French oil company Total plans to sell off assets, cut investments and reduce operating costs to generate $15 billion in free cash flow by the year 2017. The oil group, which has struggled with production outages in Libya, Kazakhstan and Nigeria, had reduced its 2017 output projections. Total, like other big oil companies, has been under pressure from shareholders to cut costs 
and raise dividends. Financial indicators, the dollar trading at 11.5 South African rands at 9.02 Botswana Pules and 6.16 Zambian Quachas. Also trading at 0.61 to the British pound and 0.77 to the euro. Now looking at commodities, gold $1,215, platinum $1,336, a finance brand crude oil at $98.77 per barrel. And that's your economics news. And now for the sports with Mosiburi Makur. Thank you, Zama. Good evening, sports fans. And starting off with basketball news, the Zone 5 FIBA Basketball Championships got underway at the Lugogo Arena in Kampala on Sunday. The championship serves as the qualifiers for the 2015 Afro, Afro Basket Championships and the All Africa and the All Africa Games qualifiers. The Kenyan team were not able to make it to Uganda due to their missing their flight. We'll have more of that story in the next hour. On to football news. The Confederation of African Football has finally agreed that Ebola is causing confidence is causing a football scam. The Continental Football's governing body reaffirmed its earlier directive that Guinea, Liberia and Sierra Leone must play their 2015 Africa Cup of Nations home qualifiers at neutral venues until mid-next month as they continue to monitor the situation. Koleta Wanjoi from the Ethiopian capital of Addis Ababa reports. The emergence of the Ebola virus disease in West Africa has not only affected the nationals of the countries, but also other continental events like football. Africa's football governing body, CAF, maintains that it is not safe for any football matches to be held in any of the three countries, owing to the fact that the disease is still spreading and continues to claim the lives of more people. The executive committee of CAF that has been meeting in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa, has decided to keep the ban on having football matches in the Ebola-affected countries. The CAF Secretary-General, Hicham El Amrani, however, says that this should not be misinterpreted to mean that CAF supports travel bans to these countries. The fact that the three nations included have not been allowed yet to uh, organize matches has to do with the importance of avoiding mass gatherings because of the important number of cases that were uh, witnessed as per the Ebola uh, virus. The Confederation of African Football has announced the names of the countries that will host the next three editions of the Africa Cup of Nations tournament. CAF made the announcement in Addis Ababa in Ethiopia over the weekend, where it also held crucial meeting with the African Union over the impact of Ebola in West Africa. Channel Africa's Francis Mutegi has the story. The next three Africa Cup of Nations will be hosted in West Africa. Cameroon will host the 2019 Africa Cup of Nations Two other West African nations, Ivory Coast and Guinea, will host the next two tournaments in 2021 and 2023 after beating other bids from Algeria and Zambia. The decision was reached at the Executive Committee meeting in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. 
The Nigerian Football Federation will hold its elections on the 30th of September as directed by World Football Governing Body FIFA. This decision was ratified by the NFF Congress on Saturday in Wari State, which was presided by outgoing NFF President Amanyu Megare. An electoral committee and an electoral appeals committee were also inaugurated as directed by FIFA. NFF's elections previously scheduled for the 26th of August were postponed after several problems arose in the build-up to the main polls. The problems were deepened on the 26th of August when Megare was arrested and Chris Giwa was controversially elected in a fifth president by a group of members backed by the Ministry of Sports. Well, those are your sports news at the Sour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. Recapping the top stories of Sawa, South Africa's Deputy President arrives in Lesotho and Sierra Leone hails its Ebola containment strategy. In economics, South Africa's power utility says the country's power grid will remain threatened until 2019. And in sports, it's the all, act- all the action from the FIBA Zone 5 Basketball Championships. That wraps up Africa Digest from myself, Zama Nyuswa, Nyuswa producer Luanda Maome, technical producer Catherine Maleka, and the rest of the Africa Digest team. Thank you for listening. For comments on the show, please email info at channelafrica.org or you can SMS plus 2782 Taking us to the top of the hour is Morwa by Jonas Gwangwa.